0: Welcome to Teaching Transformations, Designing Your Post-Career Life with Tim Desmond and Ryan Woolley. So what do you read? What don't I read? I,
1: I, that's really what I should have asked for you.
0: I, I'm, I'm a fiend. I'm a reading fiend. I really am. I, I, uh, I fit it into every nook and cranny of my day.
1: Nice. Um, any particular like genres that are? I mean, is it fiction, nonfiction, everything? It's,
0: it's everything. Uh, what's really funny is like I, I was not a bookworm as a kid. I I didn't really read anything outside of required schoolwork when I was a student until around I was like fifteen or sixteen, and I discovered Pet Cemetery by Stephen King, and then I just. I read everything of, of Stephen King's, um, but even, even like through, well, and then you get into college and you're just so overwhelmed with all the reading you have to do. Uh, I had a liberal arts degree, so I was just overwhelmed with the amount of reading I had to do. So um, yeah, I've, ne- I've never, I, I'm not one of those people who was like always have my nose in a book, but like these days, and, and, and Ryan Holiday is a, is a big, um, he talks about this a lot about how like books are the most underutilized privilege gift that we all take for granted like the statistics on reading in america are just devastating (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. the average american reads like two books a year like half of americans don't read at all any books at all um it's and it's crazy like the amount of accumulated knowledge and wisdom that are in books i i just can't believe everyone isn't just reading all all the time
1: (laughs) we do take a lot of things for granted and that certainly wow. has to be one of them. Yeah,
0: I mean, at, you look at like everyone from like you know Warren Buffett to uh, Richard Branson, um, Obama. Like, I mean, you you look at any any successful person, and they will all say like reading's the most fundamentally important thing you can possibly do to like better yourself and better your life. Just because you know you're gaining. You're getting all the experience of someone else's life without having to spend the years living it. Yeah. So, all right, let me step off my soapbox now and tell you what <laughs> I read. um I read a ton of nonfiction. I, 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 for some reason, I can read nonfiction faster. So I'll read like two to three nonfiction books a, a week, and then I'll read like one to two novels a month. Wow,
1: that's that's impressive.
0: What What are your reading habits like?
1: Um. So I mostly read. It's almost exclusively nonfiction now, and um, and I, uh, but I most of it's audio because it just that's how I fit it in. I mean, it's commutes, it's uh, working in the yard, working on my car, so I almost always I've had an Audible subscription since uh, 1999 or 2000. I, I ran a marathon back then, and like I, I would just listen to books while I was running. Um, and I've been hooked ever since. Um, but I was an English major, so I used to read a lot of fiction, a lot of short stories. Um, short story was kind of like my favorite, uh, my favorite mode. Um, do you ever get into short stories?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I love short stories. I, um, you know, the old, the Gothic horror stuff, like Poe and Lovecraft. I, I love those. I can reread those stories so many times and uh also a really big fan of like mid 20th century sci-fi like uh ray bradbury and isaac asimov i love love their short stories and uh i kind of i kind of came back to my roots like um in my in my author group one of my we, we all took a challenge for 2021 and my challenge was to write a short story a week every week for for the whole year um so knock on wood i'm uh i'm i've been doing that and and that's been a lot of fun how many stories in are you now oh i think uh nine i think i nineteen goes up sunday number nineteen wow yeah good job man yeah thanks
1: hmm um you ever read the swimmer i have not cathedral no a and p
0: nope
1: <laughs> nine <laughs> stories authors who are the no authors? these are, so uh the swimmer was john Cheever
0: Oh Cheever, okay, I know Cheever. Yeah. So the cool thing
1: about that story, it is just like a diamond. It is so perfect. Um, but it it was written as a novel, and he, I mean this, it was a few hundred pages, and he he just decided that it should be a short story. So he whittled wow. and whittled and whittled it down and into a this perfect short story. So that's one I would recommend to anybody. A um, and P is by John Updike. It's about this, uh, this young, uh, store clerk who's got like a summer job at the A&P and he's uh, a checkout clerk.
0: Okay, so this is the grocery store. I wasn't quite sure if that was, uh, the abbreviation or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And,
1: um, these girls come in, uh, in bathing suits that are like his age. And he, you know, as a young man sort of takes an interest and sort of follows them around the store, (laughs) like, uh, and, uh. I, I, I won't give it away but it's just like this really really interesting sort of confrontation that happens and uh, what he how he responds to it um, is so telling about human beings like mm-hmm. th- that's what I love about reading stories is they're very revealing about about what it means to be human and yeah. you know the stuff that we all kind of deal with and go through um, Cathedral is Raymond Carver Oh my oh, gosh! Yeah. So, yep. some people credit that with uh, sort of reviving the short story after it had kind of died out for a while. Um, one of one of the best of all time, um, and then Salinger nine stories is just nine. Uh, you know those stories I think were all published in the New Yorker, um, and then they sort of compiled p- compiled them together. Uh, but, well, the
0: Catcher in the Rye is one of my favorite books of all time. So mm-hmm. I, I, have to, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to go read all these now. Thanks a lot, yep. jerk. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll just circle back. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned Stephen King, and I, I know you're you're a big fan of his, and uh, you've read a lot of his stuff. I think he's totally taken for granted. I think just because he's sold so many books and he's he's been uh, such a popular author it has sort of taken away from uh, credit to the quality of his writing. And I think Pet cemetery is a great example of that. If you go read that, I mean, it's so well-written. Um, so. Yeah,
0: yeah, his, he became his own genre for better or worse. And, and I think yeah. we, we may have mentioned this before. I, I certainly, you know, when I talk to, to people who are a little bit younger, they, they don't understand it. I'm like, back in the day, Stephen King was considered a hack. Like, the literary world didn't respect him. He, he was... He was not, you know, that he was not looked upon favorably from from people who thought they knew how to write. So it's been an incredible transformation for him. I mean, just to see, sort of the stature he has now compared to what he had in the the early '80s.
1: Well, you get uh, how many of your books and stories made into movies, and I think that'll that'll help your reputation a little.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Um. Well, I want to play on this, this, uh, theme of stories, uh, cause we all have them. We're all living stories and, and writing our life stories. And, um, so, uh, you know, I want to, I want to delve into some questions here. Like what, what are the stories we're living? Uh, what are pivotal moments from our life life stories? How much of our stories are we writing and then enacting versus being written by others? Um, how much can we revise our stories? Um, so uh, so, to start, tell me your story <laughs>
0: <laughs> my story uh, so my story right now is I walked away from the golden handcuffs to take control of my time in my life that's That's my story right now,
1: all right, well can you take us back to the beginning (laughs) go way back
0: how far back (laughs) all the way back i i I will uh i'm not being cheeky but like i think there's also um there's sort of a context to this uh, because i've been thinking about this episode what we're going to talk about and one of the things that i realized is that i think people who claim victimhood are not going to like this episode (laughs) If you like to blame other people and other circumstances for your problems, you should probably stop listening right now. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is, um, this is, this is a, it's a challenge to see, to see how you manifest things in life. I mean, that's what we're talking about with stories, right? Like you, you sort of create your own story and then you enact it. And, and, and you can choose, Like you can, you, your story can be the boss is a jerk and um, if only that boss wasn't there, I would be a superstar. And then you can live that story out. Mm-hmm. Or you can say the boss is a jerk and therefore I'm going to find a new boss or become my own boss and you can live that story out. So it, there's an element of choice here, and, and there, I think there are people who get really entrenched in their lives and in their problems who don't see it that way. And, and, and I'm not talking about things that happen, bad things that happen to people, unexpected things. Like, I don't mean that. I'm talking about sort of the, the reality that you create it is something you create for better or worse. Like And, um, and I think it's not something it's something I have to be reminded of. And it's something I fall victim to quite often. Um, and so like, even, you know, even my story, I you know, I, I am where I am now, but if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, my story would have been completely different. Right. So like going back to your question, like what, what's the beginning of the story? I would turn it around on you and say, well, which story?
1: Yeah. Well, so what I'm trying to get at is I first of all I agree with you but secondly it's um even that point of view was informed by your life story some of it chosen some of it not chosen you know so that's what I wanted to get into is like what made you who you are and what what how much of that is fixed how much of it is malleable how much of that you know can be rewritten. And, uh, you know, since, since you had to jump to the punchline, I mean, the end of the story with all this, uh, I mean, I'll just say, the reason that I think this is worth digging into is because, um, I think that second act, uh, you know, uh, stages of lives are opportunities to, to rewrite our stories, you know? So, um, but I think that happens best if we know who we are and how we got there. Um, so that, that was kind of my reason for wanting to get into this topic. Um, and you know, not that I'm qualified in any way to, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not a therapist and I'm not looking to be uh, a therapist or anything, but I, I, um, I do think even your point of view, you know, has to, I bet you there are strands of it that trace all the way back to when you were really young. I mean.
0: Yeah, you know, I I don't know. Um it, it it's an interesting question. Like it it because it gets to like how much how much did you come into the world with and how much did you develop once you arrived? Um like I I think about my childhood, I was incredibly compliant up until the time I was a teenager. I mean, I I did everything my parents told me to do. Uh, You know, I was extremely polite and respectful, quiet. um, And I'm not necessarily saying this is a good thing. Like, you know, I I was a really, really good kid up until the time I was a teenager. And I don't know, like, I, I... so so I can't tra- I can't say like well I've always been a rebel like I've always had this streak in me that I was going to damn well do what I please and like no that was not the case like I was I was raised to be you know the, the old adage of you know children should be seen and not heard and like that was that was how I was raised and it, and even when I started to rebel as a teenager because my parents had such a strict idea of what children were supposed to do or say or be that those battles were even more intense, and I kind of dug my heels in even further, only, only to spite them, and not for sort of any moral high ground. Mm-hmm. So I, I, really don't know. I don't know where, I don't know where it started. I mean, I, I and I, you know, I, I rebelled as a teenager. Um, I almost dropped out of college um, for uh, for many of the same reasons. I'm like, I, I don't, like, I'm doing this because my parents want me to. I don't, I don't know why I'm here. Um, my dad, you know, he kind of talked me into staying and I did. And then what did I do? Like I turned around and I immediately entered a profession full of very compliant people. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, let's be honest, educators are not rabble rousers. Like we can't be like, we, you know, we have to be nurturing and empathetic. We're not, we're not the ones who are supposed to be causing the problems. And so. You know and 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 I spent decades as a very compliant I mean somewhat eccentric and minor you know uh, minor pain in the butt for for my administrators but not not a not a troublemaker you know um and I, and I stayed in a conservative uh, career as a compliant employee so mm-hmm. I, I don't know you know like I, I I think um I I don't know if there's sort of a, a thread I c- I can Trace back. I mean, what what were you like as a as a young kid, or how were you raised? Like, well, hold, hold on, we'll come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> so this,
1: so first of all, this moment, I, I, I'm calling it a moment, but I'm sure it wasn't a specific moment. But like, do you do you remember there being consciousness around like your compliance and and letting go of that, and sort of making a choice to be more rebellious? And and if so, like what? What factored into that? Was it people that you were around? Like how, how did that happen?
0: Okay, so th- this is gonna sound really shallow, <laughs> but it was about my hair. <laughs> so uh, you were around in the 1980s. You, you kind of know what, what the hairstyles were. And you know, when I was in 1980, I would say starting around 1983, that's kind of when it started. Uh, you know, Def Leppard was really popular. I wanted a mullet. At the very least, I wanted long hair, you know, and I can remember my parents like they absolutely forbid it. They're like and and they could never give me a satisfying reason. Like they would say things like, well, I'm not going to church with you looking like that. And I was like, well, first of all, what (laughs) does that have to do with? anything and who who cares who's like what does someone seeing me with you with long hair have to do with like there was never a satisfying answer to that question and and that's that's when it started and so I think I used uh music and and in relation to music my my peer group as a way to kind of dig my heels in and take a stand and be like no, you know what, like I can have long hair and it doesn't matter. It like has no effect on my character or has no effect on my ability to do my homework. Like I remember part of my rebellion in high school was like growing my hair out and getting my ears pierced. And at the same time, um, staying on the Dean's list because I wanted to prove to my parents that like this external appearance doesn't matter. Um, and so I worked really hard at that. I worked really hard at, at sort of being a, a, a rebel and hanging out with the bad kids and, and doing bad things. And at the same time, being like, well, my grades are fine. So what are you complaining about?
1: Yep. Yeah. I, I definitely grew my hair out, maybe not as much as you did, um, but I, I, you know, I grew it out. I had the earring. Uh, you had to have had a mullet. I mean, everyone had a mullet mullet ish. Yeah, I did. I (laughs) never went, I I didn't go super short on the sides. Right. Right. But but you definitely had it longer in the back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Where it starts curling up on your collar and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I had the earring in 10th grade. I, I was, um, kind of like you, I think in many ways, uh, back then, I mean, um, you know, partying on the weekends, uh, I'll just, you know, be honest, you know, I, I I drank a lot in high school. That's just what people did at my school. And I I was kind of plugged into that scene. Um, And, uh, uh, but then did really well in school and and really, you know, was a good student, Um, was really, really involved at school. Um, But I think one key difference, and this, this might be, this might explain some things is I, I my parents weren't pushing any, any sort of agenda on me. They were, um, my dad's parents had been very strict and I think he always resented that. And so he kind of went the other way with his parenting style. And, you know, my mom was just, um, pretty relaxed about things too. So, you know, the day I came home with an earring, like, you know, I I mean, I don't think they loved it, but you know, they weren't going to make a big deal about it or anything. Right. Um, but I think, you know, because I had that sense that it was okay. And I wasn't, there was nothing for me to buck, you know, like, I, like, that probably plays into a little bit of, you know, my whole story. Like, I don't, I, I've never felt like I had to rebel against anything cause I just didn't feel like anything was in my way or, or, you know, nothing was sort of keeping me from being what I wanted to be. Um, but, you know, I, I, um, I will go back and, and just, you know, kind of talk through my history a little bit. I, I went, I grew up in a small town. Uh, it's like an athletic football town. I wasn't the most athletic kid in the athletic football town, but, um, that's just where I, I went to school. Um, grew up in a neighborhood, very unsupervised. Um, but the, the one thing that I understand now, or or I should say, I came to understand as an adult that I didn't when I was young is, um, what it means to go to grow up somewhere small. Um, I had 65 kids in my graduating class. Um, and you know, there are many private schools that are bigger than that. I mean, the one I work in is, is twice that big. Um, so, and, and what we sell to the world is we know your kids and I know that's true, but you know, like in a small place, you're known, everybody's known. Uh, everybody can be somebody you can't blend in Um, so it's just sort of a given that um, you know everybody matters kind of in a way so that's something you know going back to like taking things for granted like that's just that's just always sort of been something that uh, is sort of a baseline for me Um, and probably as a kid I didn't understand that that was related to being in such a small place Um, the other thing i would say is uh i um from a very young age my dad was really empowering to me i remember i mean r- i was really young and i was helping him with tools and with projects you know i tore down this metal shed in the backyard kind of by myself like he just kind of gave me the hammers and said okay go go take oh, care the of that 80s, right? <laughs> I, I know
0: <laughs> here's some tools go rip down an old <laughs> rusted shed. Yeah. All right.
1: But it's funny. Like I, um, a few years ago, um, my dad was. Uh, they live in a duplex now, and or twinplex, and they were, um, they were prepping the other side to rent out. Their renter had moved out, and um, so some of the family had gone over to help out with some things. And uh, I had my my younger son Preston with me over there, and I watched my dad like hand him a paintbrush and said like, "Yeah, just paint this door here," you know, and he had never done, like, Preston's never done that, and I, but my dad didn't even think twice about it, he was like, just give him the tool, and, you know, give him direction, let him go, and I, it was, that was a critical moment for me, because I was like, man, I've, I haven't done that with my kids, I haven't, you know, I always am worried about it getting messed up, or whatever, you know, like, I, so I just do everything, and that's not great, you know, I don't feel good about that, but and especially from considering where I come from and how embedded it is in, in my identity. I mean, like for me, self-reliance is like the kernel of my identity. Like I just, uh, you know, we've talked about the car repairs and house repairs and stuff like that. Like I, it's just in, it's who I am and, and I'm kind of proud of it, but like, I don't, I couldn't change it if I wanted to. And it goes all the way back to those early years. Um, I mean, I'm afraid of heights now, but like when when I was in, before I was even in high school, I mean, I remember helping my dad replace the roof on the house, you know, and I was just up there pounding shingles and I didn't, you know, I didn't have a safety harness on I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't, wasn't trained. He just showed me how to do it. And um, So I know that's a core part of, of who I am. And, and again, being in the small the small town uh, and just kind of having so much opportunity for things. You know, I, I got into like theater and athletics and student government and all that kind of stuff uh, because, because you, I, I could, you know? Um,
0: yeah. So, so I want to, I want to dig into something you said there because I think there's sort of core elements of who we are that then help us write our stories. So, self-reliance is at the core of, of who you are at the core of your identity so how how does that affect the st- the story you tell ab- about yourself
1: yeah um i think it it uh it makes me think that i either am in control or should be in control of my destiny um, and that i should be able to find my way through problems and if if i can't there's a problem, you know. Like that's kind of, I would say that's my worldview. Um, now, I have, you know, going back to sort of where you started at the beginning, I have found myself at times um, feeling stuck. You know, there are times when I've I've been, you know, in the same professional position for longer than I wanted to be. And yeah, I, you know, I probably have stories about about being overlooked and and that kind of thing. But like, um, and when you're an adult, you know, there it's not all about you, you know? So there's certain things that you sort of, you might live with because you have, uh, as my, my friend John used to say, mouths to feed. <laughs> he said he had, his dad used to pull that one out, out on him and he was like, he always pictured like a mouth just, <laughs> <laughs> just a, eating. Disembodied mouth. <laughs> uh, but you know, you in terms of like being decisive and saying, you know, screw this, I'm, I'm doing something different. Yeah, your ability to make those sort of hard pivots might be a little different. I mean, you made a pretty hard pivot um, with those those responsibilities. So I'm not saying it's, it's uh, impossible. It, when there's a will, there's a way. M- my mom used to say, um, you are where you are because you want to be there. If not, you would do everything in your power to change it. And uh, I, you know, I, I do think that's largely true. Um, but again, for me, like it's important to sort of step back and think about this stuff and recognize, cause I think we all get trapped sometimes in, in our own little mental loops and we forget like, yeah, we do have willpower and we, we, we can make choices and they're not always easy and they're, you know, sometimes they're going to have risks or, and or consequences that, um, we don't love, but, um, you know, That doesn't mean we can't make them
0: yeah and i think that's why it's so important to have either friends or or small communities of like-minded people in those moments um because i you know i think about my own you know making the decision to to leave my job and become a full time writer and publisher i didn't do that completely on my own i mean i did but like i i felt like I felt like it was a risk I was willing to take because I was in a community of other people who were doing the same thing. You know, like I, I changed my story from, well, this is impossible for me. There's, there's no way I can do this to saying, well, no, other people around me are like me are doing this. So why can't I? Um, Mm -hmm. and and that's, that's the power to change that story, um, to believe it or not believe it. And it doesn't mean that there's no risk and it doesn't mean that you're guaranteed that risk is going to pay off. Um, but it, it does, it does allow you to change the story. And I think once you, once you change the story, uh, well, I think we're constantly enacting the stories we tell. So as soon as you change one, then you're immediately starting to take actions that are different than, than what they were before. And I think that's, you know, that's, uh, like, you know, you, you'll, you know, this as a runner, like the, the first time you start running, especially if you're, <laughs> if you're in your forties or fifties, it's painful. Like you don't, you don't get out there and be like, Hey, this is great. I'm a runner now. Like you almost have to tell start telling yourself that story because the, the, the physical evidence is so to the contrary, <laughs> you know, your legs hurt, your lungs burn, you, you feel like you're going to die or throw up or possibly both. And so you kind of have to rewrite that story and you have to say, no, I'm a runner and I'm going to go do what runners do. And even though it's, you know, painful, um, it's not like that forever. But like, that, I think that's where the, the power of the storytelling comes in, is if you, you can choose to say, well, you know, which I did. I did this for decades. I don't have the body of a runner. Like, my legs are too long. I get chin splints. I don't like running. Like, what, like I could come up with any number of stories that would support that, and therefore, I didn't enact any, any of, of what it would mean to be a runner until I got to the point where I said, okay, I'm a runner, a, a pretty crappy one, but I'm a runner, and I'm going to do what runners do. Um, and, you know, and that started me off uh, on a whole different path. So I, I think it's, it's easy to overlook the stories we tell ourselves, but I think at the core, they're incredibly important.
1: Yeah. Well, I saw that with your, your run, your, your hard turn into running that, what was that a year ago? Year Just and a, half? a
0: little, a little over a year ago. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and you were very conscious about it. So, you know, it's funny to hear you say, you know, using that as an example of a story, cause that, that makes total sense to me. You, you basically said, I'm going to write a story about me being a runner. And then you started, you know, as you put it, enacting that, that story. Um, and that is powerful. And I, I, I think it's probably a reason why, um, you've stuck with it. And, and, you know, you're, you, you do that stuff, uh, you know, daily or, or close to it and, and, um, but it started with that mental shift. Like I'm going to write a different story now, and I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop telling myself the story about not being a runner. And I I would bet that your story about um, about writing and about the risk you were taking when you left teaching, I bet you that story is something like, um, you know, what's important to me is to do something I love and to have control and independence. And in my story, that's going to be the centerpiece. And it doesn't matter. And I'm going to accept all potential consequences that come with that. And so once you wrote that story and started, you know, like living it, like that's, that's a different kind of story than, um, I'm going to dabble in writing and just see where it goes. Or, you know, like, so there's a I, I think the word is intention there's a lot of intention that that comes out in sort of articulating something specifically and uh, I definitely have seen that uh, work for 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 you um and it you know it has me thinking about um, the ways that I maybe could be more intentional sometimes about about like identifying like this is what I'm gonna do right now
0: yeah and I, and I don't think I came to i I don't think I fully realized that until several years after I left the classroom and was, it was no longer teaching because I think for years what held me back was, well, what would I do if I fail? Like, what if I, what if I create this story and it it's wrong? Like, and for some reason, I, I overlooked the idea that I could just write a new story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like literally, like I, like I look back now and I know like from where you are and and if if you're currently in a full-time job or if you're currently teaching walking away probably feels next to impossible. Like it it just like I know. I I I felt I I felt those feelings. And what I think what I failed to realize was I was not going to end up under a bridge down by the river. Like I just wasn't like maybe that's some sort of false sense of myself or maybe it's my own ego that wouldn't let me think that. But like I've never thought I've never thought like, well, if I walk away from teaching, then we're going to be homeless. You know, like what I what I what I realize now is that I could rewrite that story so I could say, okay if it you know, next year that my author business tanks, I'll just go get another teaching job or I'll go apply for, like and and it now to me it just doesn't even phase me. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, I'll just I'll just go make money some other way like if it doesn't work. But at the at the inflection point of that decision, it seems overwhelming. It feels like you're making a decision between your life and everything you care about and you're putting it all on the line and you're risking your family's well-being. And I think for most of us that's not true. Mm-hmm. Like I I think the worst-case scenario is if you you know, you try something and it and it doesn't work, you can just try something else or you can go back to what you were doing. Like I I think that that's what was lost on me. And I I think having a few years out now, I can look back and see like yeah, I was never really in the jeopardy I thought I was.
1: Yeah. I've something I've realized about myself over time is that I'm I describe myself as a defensive thinker. I I like to be ready for the worst and so whenever i'm thinking about making a change or whatever that's that's where my mind instantly goes is what is the worst case scenario and i try to see if i can get comfortable with that and 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 identify ways i might deal with it but and i I don't know where that comes from but it um you know it's it's again it's sort of hardwired into me but um but I think again. I know I refer to Tim Ferriss all the time, but he there's a piece in his book about about doing that, like actively think through the worst case scenario and how bad is it, and how how likely is it to be undoable? Like if you give up your job, you know, like you said, you know, what if what if things had really not gone well, you know, what's the likelihood you could get back into another teaching job? Teaching jobs are everywhere. I mean, you know, so.
0: Right, I mean, it, it might not be the exact position you had at the exact school that you had, but like, again, yeah. you're not going to be living under a bridge or anything.
1: Right, but you know, at the same time, you know, I I talk to, I have good friends and and former colleagues that, you know, they have like three to five years left uh, before they before their time is up, and you know if. Even if you're not loving it the way you used to, like I mean, there's a, there's, if you're not hating it, you know, I mean, there's something to be said for well, okay, like I can understand why you would just ride it out, or or you know, maybe you maybe you don't hate it at all. Maybe you actually still like what you do, and that's just your timeline, like, and that's okay. Um, but again, if that's your reality, I think my, what I what I think about is even if you're, you're okay and, and you're going to, uh, finish your career and be happy doing so, um, it's the change is coming either way. And so you're, you're going to have to write a new story in that scenario too. And are you ready for that? You know, do you, do you know, have you thought about who you are? Uh, because you know, we do, we do a lot of that in our twenties and in our younger years, and then I think over time, like we stop thinking about who we are and we just. I'm not saying we become robots, but like we, you know, we just get into a groove and and we're, we don't self-examine a lot. And that's, again, that's, this isn't criticism. I just think that's what happens. Um, and I think that transition times in our lives are, are an opportunity, an important opportunity to kind of look at who we are and who we want to be still. And, you know, like, and, and hopefully because we're older, we're, we have more tools to, um, to articulate that and, and to actively build toward something we want.
0: I think your your mention of time is, is putting the bow on this conversation. I, I think it, it really does tie it all together because what we're trying to do here are for ourselves and, f- and for the listeners is we're trying to make you understand that time is on your side right now. Like you don't have to make these drastic decisions, like you don't have to rewrite your story today. You can start drafting your story now you, you might be three or five or 10 or 15 years away from retirement. So you have an opportunity to slowly, carefully, intentionally, methodically start writing the story that you're going to enact. Because as you said, that change is coming whether you like it or not. Like at some point you are either going to choose to quote unquote retire or you're going to be forced into retirement and then you will have no choice. You, you will be living a new story. So start now. Start thinking about that now. Thinking about what that life is going to look like, and 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 the, that story you want to create, and start start drafting it. Like this is this is the perfect time to do that. And I and I think, folks who are our age especially, um, this is the time. You know, as we've talked about before, our kids are getting older. They're less reliant on us. Um, our our external responsibilities are lessening. So now's the time to kind of turn that back in and refocus on, on ourselves and start thinking about what that next phase is going to look like and start, start drafting the story.
1: Yeah. What, what is that? Like the, uh, the overnight, the 10, the 10 year overnight success story, right? Like, right? Yes. <laughs> like people say, um, you yeah. know, I mean, looking, I, I know I wrote about this in I think the first, uh, journal, uh, post that I did for this project, but, um, and I, th- I was talking about how I think we exaggerate inflection points, and you know, um, I know even though I know we have them, and like you know, you had that inflection point of of turning in your notice and, and leaving the teaching job, but but at the same time, how many years did you side hustle, right and build build toward that before you did that? So, you know, even if even if you were going to retire conventionally, you would it would have made sense to just gradually start building that as you were able to so that you could really kind of hit the ground running and you wouldn't be wasting time when you get to that moment in your life when like oh I really I I really can do what I want and you know have I built the sort of framework that enables me to do that
0: yeah it was almost 10 years from the time I started dabbling with novel writing until I until I became self-employed so yeah it wasn't an overnight thing it wasn't a rash decision I mean it's a very binary decision, but it wasn't. It wasn't a rash one, um, and and I had time on my side. You know, I could start dabbling, I could start experimenting, testing things out, and and you know, ten years later, I kind of knew, okay, this is the path I'm going to take. Again, n- no guarantees, but at least it was like, okay, this is the this is the streamer I'm going to step into. Let's see what happens.
1: Yep, time is on our side.
0: That'd make a great song. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Go to teachingtransformations.com and get instant access to Transformations, the free weekly email with the best personally curated resources to help those in their late 40s or 50s to design a post-career life.